Well, as I'm sure you have heard, it is a difficult time in the, connect, in the network of churches that our church is a part of called the, the Southern Baptist Convention. A couple of weeks ago, a report was made public conducted by a third-party investigator called Guidepost Solutions. And the report was commissioned by last year's messengers to the annual meeting that happened in last June in Nashville. The report showed hundreds of cases of, of abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, churches within the Southern Baptist Convention over the last 20 to 30 years. And then to make matters worse, it showed leaders within the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention who intentionally hid the information about such abuse from the churches and the other messengers or leaders of the, the Southern Baptist um, Convention and then also knowingly kept a list of this while saying that they couldn't keep a list um, of this. So really difficult stuff. Um, confronting our denomination. And if you have any questions about this report, please don't hesitate to ask me. But for this morning, in anticipation of the annual meeting that's going to be happening out west in Anaheim, California, um, actually next week, I would like us to pray um, for the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, let, I have four different ways that I want to lead us in prayer. Will you bow your heads to pray with me? First, pray for the victims and survivors of, of the abuse. Pray that our convention of churches will honor God in all we do, especially in how we minister to and care for the vulnerable. And pray for the upcoming annual meeting next week and the messengers that they have wisdom in their decision making in light of the recent revelations in the God Post report. And pray for justice to be done and and any abusers to be held appropriately accountable
Father, we come to you pleading for your help to do what we cannot do. Heal those who have been hurt. Help us to build cultures in our churches that protect the most vulnerable and seek to do what is right. Lord, I pray that you would put your love in our hearts for everyone, Lord God. I, I pray that, that we wouldn't be a convention of, of churches that, that overlook the weakest among us. Lord, I pray that we would protect, that we would stand up against what is wrong, especially as we pray here in matters of abuse. Lord, I pray next week that you would give the convention a special dose of your wisdom to make good decisions. Lord, lead us forward and help us to be a, a God-glorifying, mission-oriented denomination that we were founded to be. And Lord, I pray now for our church this morning, I pray that you would help us just to eat of your word. Lord, help, help us to, to just build ourselves up and our faith in you and in you alone. Lord, be our shepherd today, care for our souls, and glorify your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Have you ever heard of the Nazca lines? It's really interesting. They are these ancient lines that are like designs out in the middle of the desert in southern Peru. And these designs, they're of different animals. I think we actually have three pictures of, of them for you to see this morning. You can see like that one's a chicken with like really exaggerated features there. But you can see these lines literally go for, let's see, 30 miles long altogether. There are 800 straight lines in this plain where they're at. The purpose of those lines are still a mystery. Uh, some people, some archaeologists who have studied these lines uh, believe they were there for practical purposes, irrigation maybe. And, and by the way, these were made somewhere between 500 B.C. and 500 A.D. And they withstood the test of time for that long. So some think they have a practical purpose. Others think that they have more of a religious purpose. Maybe the people who made these lines thought that their gods could see these designs up from the sky. Well, anyhow, but speaking now of our, our current time, it seems like so many today are so committed to making what God has made plain into confusion, into a mystery. Just like we aren't sure the purpose of those ancient designs, it's as if many today 
have intentionally forgotten and confused our purpose as human beings. What are we here for? Who are we? But the good news, God's word, the Bible, isn't confusing. It does not leave such important questions unanswered for us. It tells us exactly why God made us and why we're all here. So to find out the answer to this question, let's turn in our Bibles back to the beginning. To the beginning of our Bibles, the book of Genesis, to the beginning of when God created us and all things. And let's read about a time before human sin where people and God were perfectly together in the garden that God had created. Let's read Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, down to verse 14. Genesis chapter 2, two 4 through 14. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth, and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers, the name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. This is God's holy word. So in what we read, we're given a closer look at the days of creation, in particular, day six of creation. We'll, we'll finish out day six next week when we hear about how God also created woman and united man and woman in marriage. In chapter 1, 
what you read is, is a panoramic depiction of the days of creation. It emphasizes God's just expansive power and creativity over the creation that belongs exclusively to him. In chapter 1, you see an emphasis on the transcendent God, a God who is above and beyond his own creation. In chapter 2, our passage for today, it's a little different. You see a God who condescends, a God who is imminent, a God who comes near. He, he comes down and he makes human beings, man and woman, in his own image. He, he comes down like a potter with clay or like an artist fashioning Adam from the dust of the ground and then Eve from his rib. The closeness of God is also seen in verse 4 of our passage. Simply identifying God as Lord God. Now, God is the Hebrew word Elohim. This is the first identifier or name of God in all of the Bible. You see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Elohim is the name of God which describes his, his ability, his creative power, his dominion over everyone and everything, his majesty as creator over his creation. But then also, this is combined in chapter 2, verse 4, with the word Lord God. And if you notice in our English translations, the word Lord is put in all caps. The word Lord there is the first instance of the Bible of the name of God, Yahweh. This becomes very important. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh is the name of God describing God for his people as a personal God. I am who I am, he told Moses. This name was only given to his people. And this shows us here right from the beginning that the same God who created the heavens and the earth is the same God who redeems and possesses his people. He knows each one of us personally. It was he who personally made man and woman, not from a distance, but down in the dust of the earth. And he breathes his breath of life into each one of us. Let's now examine this breath of life which we're told God breathed into Adam. Look at verse 7. And I'd like to read it again to you, this time using the King James translation, because I believe it captures an important emphasis in a particular way in this verse. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Not just a living being, 
like some translations will give you, not just a creature, a living creature, but a living soul. The way that the King James Version uses that word is really important. God made the man's body, and then he breathed the breath of life into him, and he became a living soul. Soul is an important word because soul includes all that we are. We still hear sometimes this word being used today. Like, for example, on an airline flight, you'll hear there were 52 souls on board. We still use this word to describe all that we are as human beings. We are body and we are soul. There is a material part of us and an immaterial part of us, which is our soul. We have an outer life, which everyone can see in the body. And then we have an inner world, which no one can see in the soul. The soul is that part of us that can relate to God. It's where we think our thoughts. It's where we feel our emotions. It's where we will our decisions and want our desires. Words like heart, will, and mind each describe the different functions or of the soul. What the soul does, in, in other words, within us. The soul, the spiritual, and the body, the physical, go together. They are intertwined. That's why we would describe people on an airline flight as souls. The soul and the body are together. They are what make you, you. When a little baby is conceived in their mother's womb, God breathes the breath of life into them, and they are a living Soul, And this is the number one reason why life must be protected from conception. Because we are created in the image of God. We are living souls. We're made to reflect the God of glory who made us. It's difficult to overemphasize the worth and value of of each human life or each human souls. We're not human doings. Our worth doesn't come by what we can accomplish. We are human beings made in the image of God. And our soul is made for God and God alone. He is the one who breathed the breath of life in us. And ultimately... No matter how hard we try, we are never going to be satisfied except for God and God alone. And I hope you can hear the verticalness or the Godwardness of how God made us. Our soul was made to depend on Him. The late Dallas Willard, who was a Christian writer and theologian, wrote a lot about the inner world of the soul. And he once said this, What is running your life in any moment is your soul, not external circumstances, not your thoughts, not your intentions, not your feelings, but your soul. 
The soul is that part of your whole being that connects, combines, and gives life. The soul is the center of life for the human being. So there is nothing more important to each one of us than taking care of our soul and making sure that we're dependent on God for everything. The soul, as you can see, was made for relationship. It was made for communion or fellowship or community. There are many different ways that we describe our relationship, soul to God. Our souls were never made to be disconnected from the God who gave us life. But as we will see in coming sermons in a couple weeks, the type of unbroken fellowship, rather let me back up, the type of, yes, let me just describe it this way, the type of unbroken fellowship between God and people that we were made for did not last, and it changed with us. Well, to put it bluntly, we changed. Our sin separated us from God. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, another place in the Old Testament, one of the, what's called the minor prophets, says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Rather than continuing to live in dependence on God, rather than continuing to love God and, and serve God and go to Him for life and breath and everything, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl has gone their own way. And our souls can be described as being puffed up within us. Meaning, we think that we have better ideas than God has for us. And the evidence of this is simply sin. We miss the mark. We tried our own way and it never works out. We have a puffed up, we have a proud soul disobeying God, sinning against God. And apart from Jesus, a person's soul is cut off from God. A person's soul is lifeless apart from Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament tells us the soul without Jesus is even spiritually dead. It's lifeless. It, it's separated from God. And, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, we're told. So this problem, it's even clearer today in our culture that encourages people in a life without God. We've replaced soul with self. We're encouraged to boast in what we can accomplish. We're encouraged in, in selfishness. We don't hear a lot about the soul today, but we hear a whole lot about the self Today, I'm sure these words feel, uh, sound familiar. Self-fulfillment, self-care, self-help, self-esteem, self-affirmation, self-identity. I mean, this is like the air that we breathe today. 
It's all that we hear 24-7, this message of self-exaltation. Self, self, self. We have replaced what it means to be human, a living soul in dependence of God, having our needs met by our Creator with a focus on self, getting our own needs met, having our own way and our own desires. We believe in our self now. We don't believe in God. We don't believe that he can provide for us. He can satisfy us. Now, we believe that we can meet our own desires. And we can fulfill ourselves. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, he asked this in the form of a rhetorical question. He said, can a man gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? Yes, we can gain the whole world. We can get everything that our selfish self desires and and wealth and relationships and, and, and popularity, um, pleasure, promotion, power. We can have all of these things that our world claims to give us, but still lose that which is most important to us, the soul. And now, now surely here, Jesus is meaning that to lose one's soul is to die and enter into eternity apart from God. And spend forever separated from him in hell. Surely that's what he meant. But also, surely he meant more than that, too. To lose one's soul also means to live life apart from God. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is to lose one's soul. To live life disconnected from God, separated from the life of God in the present where your soul can never find peace, can never find true goodness or joy or satisfaction. Sure, sin can give you a passing pleasure, but sin is like The prophet Jeremiah says, broken cistern can hold no water. You may think you have something there for a minute, but just wait. It's going to vanish. It's going to be like a mirage in the desert. To live life apart from God is to see your soul disintegrate into dryness and nothingness. It's to see it turn in on yourself. To where all you crave is just your selfish wants and desires until you can't see the goodness and the, the glory of God that's shown to you every single day. James in the New Testament 
also speaks of, of losing one's soul in the here and the now. He said this, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So he's describing there life apart from God. Angry, bitterness. Cannot produce the righteousness of God. And then in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So there is a way according to James, that we can have both the hope of eternal life in the future after we die and the pleasure of knowing God and finding real, true satisfaction, peace, and joy for our souls in the here and the now. And the way that is possible is to receive with meekness or submission or humility the word which is able to save your souls. And what is this word? It's the message of the gospel. It's the hope that God's Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth to live a perfect, sinless life, a life that none of us have ever lived. It's the hope that He died a sinner's death in our place that, that we all deserve to die. And it's the hope that he rose again to give us new and eternal life. Anybody who places their trust and dependence on the Lord can be saved. Their soul can be saved. And that's true in the future, forever with God in glory, but it's also true for the soul now that belongs to Jesus Christ. The life of God is placed in them, in their soul. And then they can truly begin to have peace that isn't possible from this world, from getting our selfish needs and wants met, so we think. Peace that, that passes and transcends all understanding can be yours in and through Jesus Christ. If you haven't made that decision to follow Christ, you can't enter into that peace today. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified or made right with God, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace isn't something that, that you attain through your own efforts and accomplishments. No, peace is something that's given to you when you trust in Christ and what he did for you in his death, burial, and resurrection. Do you want that peace for your soul today? And then once you have it, as many of you are disciples of Christ, already following him daily, already have 
placed your trust in him for salvation, the way that you grow in that peace, the way that your soul can be saved now, is through walking in dependence every single day, seeking to live life constantly like a child with your heavenly Father, longing for him, trusting in him. And daily, God's going to grow that peace. He's going to save you from all of the problems that are external. And he's going to give you a peace that this world simply cannot give in your soul. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for the hope that we have that our souls can truly be saved. That in Christ we can return to that relationship and fellowship with you that was broken by our sin. But I pray for someone here that may not have this life yet. I pray that today they may enter into this life and truly have peace with God. I pray for those who already have this peace, that they would live in it daily, that they would depend on you for everything, large and small, and that you would continue to change us and to save our souls from our own sinfulness and pride. Pray that we would have more of a humility and, and meekness about us that you desire. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Will you stand with us?